There are few things in aviation more gratifying than sharing the joy of flight with a non-pilot. And that person often looks at you as an aviation superstar, even if you've only got a private ticket. You want to live up to your passengers' expectations. But what happens if in the desire to impress you've done an incomplete pre-flight, realizing your mistake only after you're in the air? Do you fess up or try to cover up? It's the subject of this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hello, and welcome to episode 71 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco Insurance. I'm Rob Ryder, and my guest today shares his story of taking his girlfriend up for a flight to Ocracoke Island in North Carolina's Outer Banks for a pleasant day at the beach. But an assumption that the FBO had fulfilled his request to refuel the airplane led him to skip a critical part of his pre-flight, checking the fuel on board. What happened, though there was a safe outcome, haunts him to this day. We'll hear the whole story right after this message from Avemco. Since 1961, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 for a quote and save an instant 5% for being an iLaft listener. Save even more for most recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in fast team wings. Just ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can qualify and how much you'll save. Now. I learned about flying from that. My guest today on I Laughed is a gentleman with whom I share the RV grin. I am the proud owner of an RV7A, and this gentleman owned an RV6 for a while, and it's the focus, along with a lady, uh, the focus of his I Laughed moment. Scott Tomlinson, welcome to I Laughed. Well, thanks, Rob. Glad to be here. Your RV6A. Or was it a 6 or a 6A? Was it a tail dragger? It was a 6A. A 6A. Yeah. Had to be one of the most fun airplanes you've ever flown in your life. Is that Was that the first airplane you ever flew? No, no. I'd, I'd flown the Cessna 150s uh, and 182s and, uh, you know, been in various other aircraft. But the RV-6, definitely uh, the first real airplane I've been in. I said, wait a minute, first real airplane you've ever been in? And you well, said 150 and 182? It had a stick. <laughs> okay, well, I got that. That I understand. But that's not where you started. You, you, you had a lot of flight in your whole family. So it was kind of in your DNA, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's like a lot of people grew up as a child uh, going out uh, on a grass strip with my father and while he took lessons and watching him go around in circles and playing in the dirt. And then... We eventually ended up in the aircraft, and there were people on the field. We rode around the old Stinsons and Cessna 195s and uh, some Cheetahs and lots of different aircraft out there. There was even a Stearman out there. So That's some classic stuff, especially the 195 and the Stearman. That's pretty cool. Was it just point of question, uh, was the 190, was the, uh, was the Stearman, 
uh, a 225 Stearman or was it a Super Stearman with a big motor on it? It was a 225. It was the old one. Okay. So it's, that is the a original. classic. Yeah, it was a classic. And you've got brothers who learned to fly too? Yeah, actually, I had one brother that married early, so he didn't get to do the flying lessons. <laughs> Family took over, and the other two brothers, they became pilots with me. So three did, out of the four of us. Did pilot. they make careers out of it? No, none of them did. Uh, they just fly for pleasure. And that's the same with you, right? Yes, yes. My older brother has cell planes. He does. He's in New Mexico. He has cell planes and uh, various other aircraft, P-210s, just... Wow. A lot of different planes. Your experience, if he's got P-210s, I'm, I'm assuming he got an instrument rating and maybe even a commercial license. You didn't get an instrument rating, though, did you? No, I did not. I I did it strictly for fun because I had a pretty demanding corporate life, and um, I, I just did it for a release to get up in the air and have a good time. That sounds fun. And the corporation for which you worked and work, they have some airplanes too, but you don't fly those? <laughs> no, I wish I did. Uh, we had a Challenger 601 and a couple of Lear 45s. Uh, I got to ride around in and sneak up to the front cabin every now and then. But Get a little right seat time. Get a little huh? right seat time. That's pretty cool. The RV-6 is, is an airplane that has pleased so many people as have all the airplanes built by Vans Aircraft. And the RV grin is something that uh, we all talk about and, and, and we don't really joke about it because it's, it's, it's a unique feeling to be able to fly an experimental aircraft that is such a non-experiment. You know, it is so established with over 11,000 of them flying. But irrespective of the type of airplane that it is, you still have to do some procedures when you get the airplane ready. Tell us about when your ILAFT incident happened and what led to this whole scenario uh, where you were concerned about fuel. How long ago was it? Okay, so this was probably about 10 years ago. Okay. Yep. And you were going to take a trip and you were going to be a NASA test pilot or at least impress yeah. somebody. That's because that's what you put in your letter to me about being a NASA test pilot. But you never were a right. NASA test pilot. No, but people that are not around aircraft, if they think you're a pilot, they get either two things, you're crazy or they get enamored. And <laughs> the second thing, when you tell them, you, they say, oh, so you fly Cessnas. And I said, well, I have flown Cessnas, but I fly an experimental aircraft. That's when their eyes open up. And... uh they don't understand it, but because they think about Chuck Yeager, but uh, <laughs> so they think you're some kind of crazy test pilot flying these experimental aircraft. So I, I, it's kind of a joke sometimes when people see that. But anyway, I the story kind of started. Uh, I'd been out flying and reaffirming my RV grin for about an hour and a half, and I landed, and it was a beautiful day in North Carolina. And I thought, wow, tomorrow I think we'll fly to the beach. So I we, told the F who is we? We was my uh, girlfriend at the time, and I thought, wow, this would be great. We could jump in the plane and be over there in an hour and a half. And so my plane was stored in a FBO um, group hangar, and they managed moving the planes in and out, and also uh, the fuel loading because they had to do it outside their hangar. And I had told the guys when I slid the canopy jet back and jumped out with my white scarf, <laughs> figuratively, <laughs> to fill her up and put her away. And I'll be back tomorrow. So 
That was the plan. And tomorrow, which, which became the next day, you and who? What, your girlfriend at the time, what was her name? Yeah, Sandra. Sandra. She's going to yeah. be your co-pilot, right, C? She was my co-pilot slash potential victim. And <laughs> That's not nice. <laughs> doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> no, it but, doesn't. Uh, On many so, levels. Yeah. So we came out the next day, and she thought it'd be a great thing to fly in this experimental airplane at 200 miles an hour to the beach. So From where and what beach? Yeah. So it was Harnett Regional Jetport, which is located in uh, North Carolina, to... Whiskey 95, which is in Ocracoke, which is the Outer Banks. Ah, great fishing spot. Yeah, it's a great airport. You can walk a block and be standing on the beach or walk a half a mile and be at a really nice restaurant, seafood restaurant. So nice. It's a great destination. And time for you to take off. What time of day? What was the weather like? Tell us, tell us about how things transpired when you arrived at the airport to make your flight. Sure. I checked the weather, and it was nice in Ocracoke, and it was blue skies where I was. So we met out the airport around 10 o'clock a.m. The plane was pulled out, ready to go, and we jumped in. I, I did a you know cursory pre-flight and buckled her in and explained what we were going to do and flipped all the electronics on and reset everything, altimeter, DGs, the whole nine yards, and reset my fuel computer to full tanks. And resetting it is something you can't undo. And that was the procedure. So jumped in it and took off. Climbed up to altitude, 5,500 feet or so, and buzzing along, doing great, having a great time, beautiful scenery, pine trees, beautiful weather. And now Sandra's got the RV grin. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's just loving it. It's it's just an amazing ride. I you mean, are a hero. I'm a hero. <laughs> so I start doing my instrument scans, and I scanned over and just happened to look over at those two gauges that I don't use very often, and those fuel tank gauges, and because I have an electronic fuel flow, and I saw the needles were wagging like dog tails between half and quarter tank. And that is not no. a good sign yeah. because unless you can actually measure much more accurately there is no way to tell how much fuel there is really in those tanks by those gauges that is correct and uh normally those needles wouldn't even have moved off of full yet so i knew i had a problem and it hit me that the fbo never filled the plane up and if we go back to your pre-flight that you told me about you said you did a cursory pre-flight you didn't check the fuel or the oil right yeah, well, I walked around, I checked the uh, aircraft, because it is stored in a community hangar, so I always do a, you know, look for some hangar rash, and uh, I also sumped all the tanks, which I always do, and uh, I did check the oil, and jumped in, did the other pre-flight, trolls free and correct. Everything except pop the caps to look to see how much gas was actually in the tank. That's correct. I did not dip my tanks, and I had a custom, you know, dip for checking my tank levels, and so I immediately froze up and looked out my window to see if the caps were put back on. Maybe we'd suck some fuel. How would I lose so much fuel out of this aircraft? And then, of course, it dawned on me they just never put it in there. So now I start trying to do the math in my head. But you can't do any even rough math if you don't have an accurate starting point. Were you going into denial or what? Yeah, I was not wanting to make somebody sitting next to me that was really happy, really sad. So 
I started trying to calculate, let's see, I flew about an hour and a half yesterday and, you know, I start doing the, the quasi math and, and this flight wheels up round trip is about a three hour flight. And I, this plane holds around four hours of fuel. So I knew that had I flown over an hour the day before, there was no way I could make it back. And there's no fuel services on this Ocracoke. So Ocracoke has, they have great <laughs> restaurants. They got great fishing, great beach, no gas. No gas. Just a strip and a place to park. Your route from your airport from which you took off out to Ocracoke took you where? Well, it takes you over Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. Oh, that's busy. It, they don't want you to land there. No, absolutely not. And then it takes you through the Cherry Point's uh, restricted area. So the, They don't want you to land there either. They don't want you to even fly through there, so... They're pretty good about letting you through, but sometimes you have to go around it, which burns even more fuel. So you don't know until you get there. So you turned around and went home and nothing happened, right? Well, actually, I kept moving forward because I'm a pilot and we got to get there. So I was uh, continuing to do the math and continuing to smile. And uh, suddenly I noticed that the visibility was really getting bad. And it was, it probably dropped to five, six miles visibility. Which, yes, it's not terrible, but, and, and then I noticed some dark columns off in the distance, and those columns, of course, were rain shower. So now I'm sitting here going, wow, um, I've got to make a fuel stop. I don't know any air, airports in the area that have fuel, because you're pretty much getting into a swamp once you get past Seymour Johnson. And I've got weather caving in. I've got isolated showers now. And I know I can't make it back with the fuel I have. So this is starting to turn into, what am I going to tell Sandra? But at this point, if the weather is going bad, you, you <laughs> really don't have to tell her the truth yet that you were an idiot because you didn't, put, didn't check your fuel. So I found it out. I told Santa, I said, hey, it looks like it's getting rainy up ahead and it might be cloudy at the beach. Maybe we should just turn around and go back to the state park and have a hike instead. And she said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. You had been sweating. I'm sure you had to develop the sweats. Oh, yeah. I, I was definitely trying to figure out how to solve this situation. At this point, how far into the flight were you when she said it's a great idea to go back and take a walk in the woods? I'm about an hour and 15 minutes in. So I'm getting close to bingo fuel. You're quickly reaching the point of no return, but you've got your out. You turn around, go back, and land safely. Yeah, I turn around. That horse heads back as fast as I can. That was the best 180 I ever did. May I ask how many hours you had at this point, Scott? I had over 500 hours. Is it proper for me to say you should have known better? Oh, absolutely. And then I was trained better, and and this it just was one of those things where you made an assumption. That's what I made. I assumed somebody did what they were going to do, which was my fault. You landed safely. Yep. You had your walk. Yep. Probably went out for a nice dinner and had a great date. Yes. Did she remain your girlfriend? Well, for other circumstances, no. We're still friends, but... There's one more question about her that I want to ask, but what I'd like to do is take a break at this point. We'll come back and figure out what you learned about flying from that and also find out that one other special question about Sandra. We'll be right back. 
Avemco insured their first plane in 1961. Ironically, that same Cessna 172 became Avemco's first claim. That's what started them on a mission to improve pilot safety. They even reward safe pilots with reduced premiums. You'll save 5% for caring enough about safety to be an eye learned about flying from that listener. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 and ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can save with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. Now, back to iLAFT. We're back with Scott Tomlinson, who, along with his then-girlfriend Sandra, took a flight out toward Ocracoke and realized that he didn't have enough gas to do the trip properly, and it was weather that bailed him out. I know you learned some things about flying from that, but I will ask this question first, Scott. Did Sandra ever find out that you did not properly pre-flight the airplane with enough gas to get there and back? Or is the time at which she's going to hear this podcast going to be the time that she learns about it? Yeah, unfortunately, the latter. But, uh, <laughs> no, and, and I think that's part of the lesson learned and, and the feeling that I hope to describe. Complacency and the desire to get someplace and the desire to impress somebody can all work against you, even if you've got hundreds or even thousands of hours. You know, it's kind of like an umpire in baseball, that the thousands of pitches, they're going to get some wrong. If you fly thousands of times, you can say, well, I'm going to get something wrong. But sometimes that can be catastrophic and could cause a, a fatality. But it did not in this case. And you weren't ultimately weren't close. But if the weather had not deteriorated, you may have continued the flight and put yourself in and Sandra in a potentially dangerous situation. Yes, that is correct. So I would say the lesson learners, there's a couple of what I would call simple surface lessons. Number one, complete the pre-flight, regardless of past experiences, which in my case was the FBO. They'd always done what they said, and I was complacent. So complete your pre-flight correctly. That's number one. Don't, don't, no shortcuts. And number two, do a better job of understanding the route and the options should a standard emergency, which this was not a engine out, this was a you know, self-inflicted emergency and, uh, in other words, know your alternate airports and believe it or not, I'd flown that many times and never really knew where my closest alternates were. And I think had I been more prepared, I probably would have done something, but I, I'd left myself out, you know, again, almost complacency of just a simple trip. I'd say that's the two simple lessons. Both good lessons. So what about something more complex? What else did you learn? Rob, I think the more complex lesson I learned is I woke up the next day and I was still feeling kind of sick about this flight, which was got me thinking, why? Why do I feel this way inside? And I think after reflecting on it, it's dealing with the internal thought that I was actually trying to internally justify a reason to continue the flight. And the rationale of not wanting to disappoint my passenger was overcoming the reality of the danger 
that was involved. And, and I, the fact that I was actually consciously trying to keep moving forward and find a way out and put somebody that's innocent sitting next to you in danger was the part that down deep that shook me. How did it change your flying? Oh, I, there's not a day goes by. I don't walk out to refly an airplane. I don't think about that time because again, you know, as pilots, sometimes we have a lot of innocent people. We have our children and wives and coworkers that don't know how to fly and rely on you 100% to make it to the destination. And the, and, and by not looking at the data and doing what should be done, sometimes we convince ourselves to do things we shouldn't do. And I think that's what shook me and I couldn't believe I was actually trying to convince myself that I had enough fuel to make the round trip. And then of course, you know, common sense prevailed and we turned around and came back. But, uh, that was, that made me reflect pretty deep on being a pilot and having people in my aircraft. You say common sense prevailed, but deteriorating weather kind of forced your yeah. hand. I mean, the weather wasn't too bad and, and unlike the plains where I grew up, you know, when you see a storm coming, you, you get on the ground and hunker down in Oklahoma and Texas. Yes, indeed. And they're pretty easy to spot because they're about 60,000 foot tall and coming at you at 70 mile an hour. <laughs> but, uh, around in this part of the country, the scattered showers, you can, you can work your way around them pretty easily. And it was clear on the coast, but you know, we were going to have to penetrate through some not great weather. I probably could have made it through that weather pretty easily, but it gave me an excuse is what. <laughs> so you didn't have to look like the bad guy. Or the stupid guy. Forgive me for using the term, but you didn't have to make yourself look like you 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 screwed yeah, up. Yeah, and that that was. But you, but you did screw up. Yeah, right? that was part of the problem too. Is I probably didn't want to have to admit that I'd made a mistake, and uh, I should have popped the caps and checked the fuel, and I would have instantly noticed it. When you walk around now and do your pre-flight, you probably have the same kind of flip-up tabs on your fuel caps that I have on my airplane. I use the key to the hanger to pry them up so I can always look. But those keys are in my hand because they don't go in the, the ignition until I sit down in the airplane. Is that where, is that where you carry a screwdriver or something with you for the whole pre-flight as you, as you go around and then check the fuel? Or Yeah, yeah. Mine on that plane when I owned it, I've sold it since then. But yeah, you could flip them up with your fingers. You could actually get your finger on So they came open pretty easily. Uh, they popped up and, uh, but I definitely... If I, if I couldn't see the, the fuel at the rim, which is, again, obvious, it's got fuel in it. If it's a partial tank situation, I have a custom dip tube that I check all my tanks with. Those are good lessons, and I'm glad you learned them. What, what is so incredible is that you learned it without uh, injuring yourself or anybody else or putting anybody at risk for any amount of time, really. Yeah, I mean, technically, there wasn't any risk in what happened, but there could have been, and it could have turned into a nasty situation. And, uh, yeah, I just look back on that. I, I've done some, a few more eye laughs in my life, but they were in my junior, you know, first 50 to a hundred hours. Uh, and, uh, 
they probably weren't near as bad as I thought they were at the time, but I, I spooked myself a few times, but that's a learning process. But at 500 hours, not having enough fuel, zero excuse. All of them good lessons, Scott Tomlinson. Thanks so much for being on I Laughed. No, I appreciate it, Rob. And, and it's, you do great work and, you know, people learn lessons from other people's mistakes. And I'm, I hope I help somebody. I hope so, too. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Rob. I'm really pleased with the stories that have been coming my way, and especially the lessons they've taught us. And if you've experienced an I Laughed incident that you'd like to share, send me a synopsis and we'll consider it for a future episode. My email address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you'll subscribe and share it with your friends. I Laughed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We drop episodes every couple of weeks, so you can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. The I Laughed theme and commercial instrumental music for the podcast was written and performed by Rob Potorf. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine, and Lisa DeFries is the executive producer of I Laughed. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.